The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and this is the show Socially Distanced, uh, a.k.a. Basketball. Uh, My name is Paxton Wright. With me uh, is my co-host, Justin Kiever. How's life, Justin Kiever? Uh, It is going pretty well, um, insofar as I am alive. That's pretty good. It's better than a lot of people can say these days. uh, Yep. Yep. Yeah. So pretty tight i'm glad to see that you're alive and uh i hope we're both alive next week and the week after that but uh time will tell yeah me too um yeah you want to talk about economics yeah let's talk about yeah let's talk about the subject i'm super well versed in and that i think most americans are well versed in and is very graspable and easy um let's just hop right into it uh game stops back baby (laughs) you know power to the players We've been saying it for years. You know, yeah, knew- see, that's the thing. A bunch of Redditors listen to our show and like, man, these guys sure do miss GameStop. I bet GameStop's going to be on the up. You know, we um, all knew Amazon was a bubble. It was, it was <laughs> obvious. It was bound to happen. Yeah, so this GameStop story, like I honestly remember like seeing this at first and going like, oh, wait, is GameStop like suddenly viable somehow? And then I like read like read like the first like article i found i was like oh no no they're not (laughs) um no this is a fun with the stock market yeah i mean i guess you want me to like kind of give a little like the background that i can about this yeah give an overview because like honestly like based on just my research in the last few days and all the learning i've tried to do like i'd say i'm about 60 percent well-versed on this story and it sounds like you're about 64 percent well-versed on this story so i think you're just slightly more qualified to explain it than i am uh sure yeah well i'll start with um i don't know the like exact kind of like players and like like who was like the original kind of like reddit person to be like hey invest in gamestop so i'll just kind of like give like the the broad strokes um so yeah, basically, you know, as we have discussed on the show, uh, GameStop, the company, is uh, on the decline these days because no one is going to brick and mortar stores to buy games for you know for reasons of COVID and also just that's the way like game hardware is going. M- much less a brick and mortar store that's like kind of been running a long con for the live since they've existed so pretty much yeah. yeah i mean you know like no one's going to the video game pawn shop anymore and basically what that means you know in terms of like the stock market is that yeah like gamestop's uh, stock has been steadily on the decline and the way that people who, who you know like play the stock market make money off of that is that they they bet against gamestop stock and They do that through a practice called short selling, which I guess I should go ahead and explain to the extent I understand it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so short selling is basically a practice in which a a firm, let's say an entity, borrows stock from another entity and they borrow that stock kind of, you know, like they borrow and they ostensibly pay interest on it for amount of time. And that's why they can borrow stock at all. So they borrow the stock, the stock that they think is going to decline. They immediately sell it for, you know, like a price 
And then it hopefully they think like the stock will decline in price and then they buy it back for a lower price and then they return it to the people that they bought it to the, to the people that they borrowed it from. So basically, you know, and that is a way of making money. So it's like, uh, I feel like this is, and we'll get into this a bit, but I know that like sometimes like the real world kind of like comparisons don't really hold, but it's like, you know, Paxton, um, if you, if we could like reach through the screen and I, and you wanted to borrow this pencil that I'm holding from me, you know, if you borrowed this pencil, sold it to someone for $10, and then the pencil's value depreciated. You bought it back from them for $5 and then you gave it back to me. Basically you would have made $5. Like that is the, and so that's the way that um, uh, hedge funds such as uh, Melvin Capital, for instance, uh, that is the way they make money on companies that are declining is basically you, you know, borrow stock and sell it on the kind of guarantee that it's going to go down in price. So you can buy it back and return it and, you know, make money um, on the difference. So uh, some Redditors on our Wall Street Bets, which is a subreddit that I, a lot of people with way too much money, you know, playing the stock market, uh, like, but like, they're all like, none of them are professionals. This is all like, you know, amateur retail investing. I think the, the name is. Basically, they decided, and I think part of this was just kind of like a, some of it was animosity and some of it was kind of a joke. Hey, what if we all bought a lot of GameStop stock? And then um, everyone started buying GameStop stock. And what that did was it artificially, or not even artificially, basically demand for the stock increased. Therefore, the price started rising. Also, the various short sellers who had um, stock in this would then kind of like, you know, sell their stock. And that in turn, like they would, they would see the prices rising, realize, okay, we need to go ahead and sell the stock now. Then they would sell their stock. And then that would increase the price. And basically what happened was um, a bunch of writers created demand for a stock that was on the decline, leading that stock's price to rise astronomically. And that meant that all of these uh, you know, firms, these hedge funds, or again, particularly Melvin Capital, um, who were you know, betting against GameStop, who were going like, yeah, GameStop's gonna keep declining. They have now, they're losing tons of money. Like they, because they were betting this is gonna go down. So now like anything that they would buy back, they would have to buy back at a much, much higher price. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, I mean, that's basically the story. Does that make sense? You know, some Redditors like bought a bunch of stock, artificially increased the price. And that means that the, uh, these, the people, the firms that were betting against that have lost a ton of money. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, that's, that's more or less been my understanding of it too. The, the, the trickiest thing is, is understanding short selling. Like I get what hedge hedge funds are. I've had that down. I I understood like the origin of why this went down the sort of, as you said, like the kind of uh, like symbiosis of, of uh, animosity and meme culture. Uh, But the, the, the concept of short selling is far more complicated than it seems like it should be I, I i am grasping it better the the pencil analogy you gave was actually very helpful um i watched uh it's actually funny i watched when it came out back when i was like in high school i saw the big short in theaters mm-hmm. and i remember being like oh i kind of grasp this oh this like this makes sense because margot robbie and anthony bourdain laid it out for me um and years went by and i actually think now since then I may have had a better grasp on economics and the stock market in my senior year of high school than I do now at age 25, but I'm relearning. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting back there. Um, I'm probably going to actually rewatch the movie over the weekend just to really try and nail down more of the specifics and also to give myself some context for what went down in 2008 too, because that one I can explain not nearly as well. Uh, yeah. Um, so that was actually one thing I was reading through some of the stuff. And this was um, something I was kind of hoping to talk about a little bit because I watched the big short on a plane. It's not the ideal way to watch this. But I remember watching this and getting a kind of getting a sense of like, just the super, super basics of like what the stock market was at all. And then 
really like the actual mechanics, like the, like the moments where like, you know, Margot Robbie shows up and is like, Hey, this is all really boring, but uh, I'm really hot and I'm going to explain it to you. So you're going to pay attention. Actually like that prevented me from understanding, not because I was distracted by Margot Robbie, but it was like the presentation, like this very like self-conscious, like, Oh, this is all boring nerd stuff that, you know, both of like, that doesn't really matter, but is actually incredibly important. And we're going to make it all like, you know, cool and fast paced and like the fast paced nature of it as well as the, I don't know, um, the, what I'll call the light condescension of the big short that I think is like way worse in like the forum explanations of uh, short selling that I've seen. Like, yeah, it just like, it really, it prevented me from understanding anything. And that's like in the forum thing, like when I like look at people, like, you know, do things like, like forum explanations for short selling and like for stock market stuff are just so awful because like the thing about, like comparing stocks to like actually existing uh, commodities is that there's a point where you can't because the whole point of, you know, stocks now is that they're not, that like these things are not bound by, uh, you know, a material relation to the world. So then you have like all the, so then you have like these, you know, these people on forums, like explaining this stuff by basically like laying out these like grand fictions of like company X and company Y, and you have, you know, this many cars and, you, and, and like, it's this very kind of like, it, it feel it, it's it, I feel like I'm watching the big short every time I like read one of these forum posts where they just you know like they, they like produce this whole like fiction for you and I'm just like no 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 just like lay it down for me in, in like in more basic English that does not you know doesn't do not give me all of these actors to kind of follow just tell me the mechanics and that to me is like way clearer but anyway that's maybe just me yeah, I mean, it may just be the, the method of learning. Um, I, I may have that same uh, that same result rewatching it um, because, again, I, I don't know. Margot Robbie and Anthony Bourdain did what they needed to do when I was seventeen or eighteen, <laughs> but it, it's very possible I've gotten a lot dumber since then. Um, smoked a lot of pot in college, so <laughs> it's an, it's entirely possible. <laughs> hey, um... sing, um, but. <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. We will we'll see. But I think um, I think the thing that has been most interesting about it is that it is a just like the actual concept of short selling itself. Um, mm. The like the running theme and narrative behind this is equally convoluted. Um, yeah. Like what is the, like the significance of this story is also kind of insane because on one hand you have like you have uh, uh, schmoes on the internet rallying together and sort of making a statement of like the kind of attack on an existing seemingly unthwartable power structure that can happen and be possibly successful we'll we'll see in the long run but um be possibly successful when people organize um and when people are are fed up enough and people are yeah calculated enough to actually sort of take on a system um you also have the perk of watching people on cnbc lose their minds uh which has just made for great content in the last few days uh you also have the anxiety of what kind of legislation will almost surely be passed uh as a result of this that bars uh that bars regular americans from taking place in the stock market more than it already does um you have very cryptic language like uh you know uh, sec uh treasury secretary janet yellen is monitoring the situation closely with no more explanation um you know you have there's and, and you were saying before we went on air that like you're of the mind that like this may all be one big play by Wall Street, which I would like you to elaborate on more. But yeah, my, my point is that like there is such a complicated mixed narrative to this that is at one point that is a, in one respect, extremely encouraging and in one in another respect, extremely bleak. Um, but yeah, elaborate on what you meant by um, by by uh, uh, people getting played here, because I'm curious to, to sort of figure that out. 
So, yeah. And I think like that kind of like the idea that people are getting played, I think does, I need to qualify. I need to have some qualifiers there and some definitely some like big, big caveats, which is one, what is happening to Melbourne capital is good and hilarious. Uh, and, you know, in my opinion, like I, your correct opinion. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You my incredibly to, correct opinion to justify that. Um, yeah, no, like it's, a. Uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, the, um, like, I think, and I want to get into like the good takeaways here. Uh, you know, even if I don't think this is necessarily like the revolutionary act, I do think like a lot of people are realizing something about the stock market that I think is important. And it's that the stock market is fake. The stock market um, is fake. Money is fake. None of this matters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that is good. Also, like we have seen, you know, like, ordinary people get like amounts of money that have been helpful. And like, you know, people like saying on like, you know, like the wall street bets uh, thing, like not even just like the millionaires that post there so much says talking about how much money they made, but like people talking about like, you know, being able to like pay back, you know, getting money, being able to like pay back student loans with this getting to, you know, pay off their mortgage. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like people, you know, like they're, they're, this is actually materially benefiting people or at least you know it has it might not be anymore as like you know when we're recording this show but it has and that and that is extremely cool and like i think yeah like you know it actually it feels like a sort of revolutionary act in that way like it feels like a redistribution of wealth in a certain way that's like intervening in um you know in the stock market but also i think the um but you're mentioning, but Paxton, kind of what you're mentioning about like, you know, possible legislation that happens after this and like restrictions on retail trading is sort of like where I go like, oh, right. Because the thing is, um, you know, most of this trading is happening through an app called Robinhood. And like, this is something that people have reported on at this point. Like this is basically happening through Robinhood and uh, Robinhood, the way that they make money, in my understanding, is that basically they sell uh, sale data to a, um, a company called Citadel Securities. And, and I think they like conduct, and I think they like conduct their trades through Citadel Securities. And Citadel Securities like, you know, gets that data and they can, and yeah, and I think that like, there's sort of, I don't know, I had a grasp on this and I've lost it. Um, <laughs> Basically, they sell they sell the sale data to Citadel Securities, and that kind of like the aggregate of you know like it, it's a very uh, it's platform capitalism is what it is you know like you know like when we talk about like you know data being sold like this is what we mean you know like this is a, a company that trades sale data for money so Citadel Securities can um, oh god uh, so Citadel Securities can basically like you know intervene in like the workings of the stock market in ways that like I can't explain like there's a um there's a good article on the verge that um is worth reading which is like where i got most of this information and the thing about that is that basically someone is profiting off of this and i think that like part of like you know what the story of like hey you know like we're taking down wall street or whatever like you're not really like there are a, there are certain hedge funds that are losing a ton of money but you know we shouldn't mistake specific hedge funds for Wall Street writ large. And what seems to be happening, or a way that we could read this, um, is really that it's Wall Street versus Wall Street. You know, it's like certain firms, certain funds against other funds. And one thing that um, a weird connection that people have pointed out is that, so Melvin, you know, when faced with this, like, you know, billion, like, you know, billions and billions of dollars lost, has received a $3 billion infusion from Citadel, which is not Citadel Securities. It's a different thing. Okay. That was started by the same guy as Citadel Securities. <laughs> so yeah, there's like this weird kind of like pseudo connection where it seems like one thing that is happening is that this company, you know, that one company has taken this opportunity of Melvin, uh, you know, Melvin Capital's huge loss to intervene in Melvin Capital and kind of like gain a foothold within that fund. Um, and yeah, I don't know. And like via a system that this other different Citadel, but also the same, but also the same because it's run, you know, started by the same guy. Like, 
anyway, there's like this weird connection thing happening here where it sort of seems like there is a play being made by Citadel um, where like all of these like retail traders are kind of the a cover for like a different sort of market intervention that could be happening. It might be a cover. And the thing is like the only evidence for this that I've seen so far, and this is the kind of thing, like I want to see like what happens in like the next few weeks um, and like what we learn, because there are like all of these like really small uh, trades being made. And then occasionally there are these huge like sells of GameStop stock, you know, like people like, you know, each selling one share and then people selling like, you know, 52,000 shares. And there's a decent chance, I can't remember the exact thing, it was like maybe 58,000, like there was like one sale that happened at like, you know, 1.32 p.m. on Tuesday that seemed beyond what any like re single retail trader could do. So, um, and this was a thing that was just like tweeted about by like Matthew Stoller or something, um, who I think is, uh, you know, like who, who's a journalist somewhere, I don't know. Like there is a... Um, Again, like this has been all very, this has been very difficult to keep track of. And I think the important thing to understand is that, you know, it's not necessarily that like people are being duped per se, because, you know, they're making money on this and Melvin Capital is losing money. Um, but I think what we're seeing now, and like the thing that's happening basically as of this recording is that Robinhood has made it impossible to buy GameStop stock. And they're actually now like for selling it. They're selling it without people's consent. Yeah. 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 And I think the, I don't think people are being fooled, but I think what's going to happen. And I think what is currently happening is that, you know, you're running into the fact that like, we don't own the passageways by which these trades happen. And that, you know, even if even if we, you know, like you intervene on mass in this way to, you know, like artificial to boost a stock like this, uh, the thing, the thing is like, that's still happening on a controlled, you know, on a controlled road, so to speak, um, that you do not, that like, you know, the individual retail traders do not own and really don't have a say in. And it seems like, I mean, this is, um, all I've seen from like a, you know, a Reddit post by someone who claimed to work at Robin Hood. Like this is, you know, a move that is being kind of like, you know, imposed from the outside, basically like they're getting pressure to do this. Um, and yeah. And like the big kind of, the big question is where are they getting that pressure from? Are they getting that pressure from somewhere that is also going to make sure that any lawsuit that gets filed against Robin Hood and there have been lawsuits already filed against Robin Hood for this, um, but you know, the efficacy of those lawsuits is kind of determined by who is pressuring them. Cause yeah, you know, like, that's the thing is like, this is because the system, you know, the system works in wall street's interest ultimately. And wall street is, you know, both, you know, like both a kind of like, you know, one conceptual mass, you know, it's a thing, but also it is an assemblage of a lot of different things that are at war with one another. And yeah, and I think that, that that's basically my main thing is that like Melvin Capital is not Wall Street. It's not the whole of Wall Street. And it seems like this is Wall Street versus Wall Street. And the people in like making money on this are, you know, a part of that larger battle. Yeah. Anyway, and, yeah, go ahead. No, and, and it's interesting because it is like the kind of thing where you're not, you're not, you know, you're not destroying wall street in one fell swoop like that. And I, and I think most people are aware of that. Um, I think most people know that this doesn't end with, uh, with, you know, with wall, with wall street falling to its knees. I think most people know that. I think there is a real joy in watching billionaires become destitute overnight. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a, I think there is a uh, an encouraging message of like again yeah populist movements that shake things up are very much possible um which we kind of saw in a less positive way with trump in 2016 but like but like you know we it's being reaffirmed um mm -hmm. and i think especially with just the fury that comes with seeing the wealthiest one percent uh watching uh, like watching them get 
a gajillion times richer over the course of the pandemic as more and more Americans become homeless than ever before. Um, I don't know if that statistic is 100% accurate, but a lot of Americans become homeless and and laid off from their jobs as Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg uh, gain $1.7 trillion in wealth. Um, So I think there is also a, a really good cathartic retaliation against that kind of thing where even though the war probably won't be won a battle might very likely be won and to some respect has already been won um so there's there's a lot to take away from this um it's at once kind of a nerve-wracking start to 2021 and like kind of a cool start to 2021 it's it's a very I I am very of two minds on this. And I think that most people who are observing the situation are also of two minds on this. Yeah. And I think um, like the thing that really does give me hope about it is the like, not that like this is going to like lead to any kind of like real destabilization of wall street, but like this is kind of a consciousness raising moment though, Mm -hmm. where, you know, like, yeah, we're like you said, like there is still this spectacle of, you know, like people going on CNBC and going like, this is horrible. And um, you know, like people who, you know, uh, have a lot of money that suddenly don't have as much money and that's pretty cool and also it really is a moment where you know like oh hey if you want an example of how like the stock market just doesn't exist like how like this is you know like how money has no reference and you can basically intervene in the system of capital just by like through sheer force of will um because again like it's not real it's not real it doesn't correspond to like you know it like it is a system corresponding to itself and that's it um yeah like like the fact that you know like people seem it's just such a great example of that that it's like okay at least people you can like you can rally around this you know like in a kind of like theoretical like okay yeah like this is you know this is not a real system and it's also interesting too because like it's the kind of thing where even 10 years ago if this kind of thing tried to go down the the like mainstream media narrative would have been so much stronger and had such bigger sway on the masses that they could tell people this is wrong and this is bad and probably a vast majority of Americans would go along with that now that now that Twitter and Facebook and and Reddit like they hold so much sway um, th- beyond mainstream media. Uh, I-, I feel like there is a such a greater awareness of of kind of what a farce this is, and and uh, in a way that I don't think could have existed even ten years ago. Um, and so, like again, I think I think Twitter is a toxic waste dump uh, in so many respects. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that can be used as a tool for good. I mean, can be used as a tool for cutting through the noise, creates its own noise in the process, but also cuts through a, a carefully weaved narrative that uh, that the, the major outlets are trying to uh, push. Um, so this is an example of like social media also being used for good, which is nice because you, you don't see as many of them. Uh, yeah, we don't we don't have very many of those no. uh, stories these days. <laughs> no, so it's it's uh, it, social media was used for pure evil just like a month ago, but mm-hmm. uh, this is a pretty cool one. So so yeah, it, it's definitely it's interesting. I, there's a very good chance we'll be returning to this story next week because I'm sure it's not slowing down anytime soon. Um, I also wish my friends who put money into this, some of them a lot of money into this, uh, all the best. And, uh, you know, hold the line, guys, I, or, or don't. I don't know. You understand the stock market better than I do. Do whatever makes the most sense. But, um, <laughs> you know, don't lose your money, I hope. Um, that, that's my word of advice to my friends who aren't listening to this show. <laughs> hey, don't lose your money. Keep, keep it in a wallet. Put it in a vault. Stop buying so much avocado toast. Skip, skip Starbucks once a week. My <laughs> God. Uh, anyway, we will return shortly with uh, less important stuff. Uh, talk to you soon, folks.
You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Socially Distanced, and I am Justin Kiever, one of the co-hosts, and with me is the other co-host, Paxton Wright. Say hello, Paxton. Hello. Everyone calls me Paxton Wright, except for the people that don't, and I don't know who those people are. but Those people are Paxton wrong. Exactly. Um, Hey. All right. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's it for today. there's There's no moving on from that. Um, no, yes, and uh, and uh, we'll do that just now. I really derailed things there. Uh, I hope <laughs> I, you can forgive me. I thought I, I thought we could land gracefully on our feet after that, and um, we we just uh, we just crashed and burned, um, like, like um, seven forty seven. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully we can move uh, we can move packs this. Um, that one didn't oh, work quite as well. Oh, oh no, it took me a second. To, oh gosh, I, I almost feel like we should re-record, but we're not gonna. <laughs> we're gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna go forward with this because uh, this is the illusion of live radio. Indeed, and uh, you know, frankly, I think it's a uh, totally appropriate opening to our feast in the weast this week because we are talking about something else that is uh, so bad it's good, just like my puns there we go but also like so good it's good too just like my segues (laughs) (laughs) it's this is so fitting um yeah so i promised at the end of our first half that we'd be talking about something a lot less important than the potential destabilization of wall street and i'm gonna live up to that promise um we're here today to talk about a goofy silly anime game for the nintendo switch and that goofy silly anime game is deadly premonition 2 um the sequel to if you can guess deadly premonition uh which is to even begin to explain both of these games justin you 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 watched a stream of the first game right so yes and i played and i played about like 10 15 hours of it so uh imagine if twin peaks was resident evil that's a resident evil 4 specifically that's a really interesting it's a really interesting analysis and imagine if twin peaks was also remade into a an anime um like it is the first game is so fascinating because it, it it very, very, very blatantly apes on Twin Peaks in a way that is like, it goes beyond homage into full-on shameless ripoff, which is which weirdly only adds to its charm. The basic premise of the first game is small town in Pacific Northwest, little logging community, um, teenage girl who is the, uh, you know, high school queen bee uh, who everybody knows and everybody loves in the town found, found dead on the shore. Hold on. Are, are you just describing Twin Peaks at this point? It's- I don't even know anymore. See, man. see because the, the thing is, in Deadly Premonition, she's found like on a tree. Not oh, on that's that's right. That is right. Yeah. Yes, she is not. She is not uh, wrapped in plastic on the beach. Yeah, that's right. She is. She is mounted to a tree in a sort of like crucifix kind of fashion. Yeah. Um, the town's police department is really ill-equipped to handle it, and so the FBI is called in. They send in one of their agents named Francis York Morgan, who is sort of an eccentric that is uh, very into sort of the spiritual and the ethereal and also talks to an imaginary voice in his head. Throughout the game, you work to solve the mystery of who is behind this uh, and meet the quirky townsfolk along the way, many of whom, again, ape on Twin Peaks, a lot of greasers, a lot of of working class Joes. Uh, There is also a lady who carries a pot of stew and speaks for the pot of stew as though it is a living being and it might also be a living being. Um, It it really, they're again, shameless. Um, But a genuinely engaging story because the direction it takes does go in a very different place than Twin Peaks. Um, Yeah. yeah, and And that is kind of where the heart of it is. It is sort of like, it is kind of a reimagining of Twin Peaks, taking the same basic setup and going in a very obtuse, even more obtuse direction with it. Um, yeah, like I, I think like the big difference um, that you kind of alluded to is that, yeah, like a lot of, or, there are twists in the story 
that have to do with the psychology of the main character in a way that uh, Twin Peaks, uh, the show, as opposed to Twin Peaks, the game, which I think is what I'm calling Deadly Premonition. In that might, might as well um, at this point. I mean, yeah. So like Deadly Premonition is interested in kind of like the hidden past of its main character in a way that Twin Peaks just isn't, you know, like Dale Cooper is like, you know, Dale Cooper does what it says on the tin, you know, like Dale Cooper is Dale Cooper. Like you, what you see is more or less what you get. And there's like, you know, a dark past, but not a dark past that like fundamentally changes the way you understand that character. Whereas like there is a, you know, there's a big old twist in, uh, in, uh, the original Deadly Premonition that kind of like does change that. And that is sort of like where that story differentiates itself, at least in my memory. Yeah, and also just like the absurd heights it's taken to. Um, yeah, which is it's another it's sort of sort of another key element. Um, but yeah, the the psychology of the main character is incredibly important because it elaborates primarily on, you know, the key difference being Twin Peaks, at least in the original run prior to the sort of the reboot in 2017. Um, you know, Dale Cooper famously talks to Diane, who is he's he's recording into a cassette player. Um, and, and, uh, he's speaking to someone named Diane and the viewer is never sure. Like, is Diane a real person? Is this like a weird kind of imaginary friend that Dale Cooper has? Where are these tapes getting sent, et cetera, et cetera. Season three does elaborate on that, but kind of neither here nor there. Again, doesn't really have to do with the character's psychology. Does elaborate a bit more on his past, but not really uh, another conversation for another day. The care, the voice, um, that, Deadly Premonition's protagonist, York, speaks to, Zach, also seems like that same sort of gimmick at the beginning of the game and does go somewhere very different by the end of it. The, the voice has way more significance to the main plot than one might think. Again, we won't get into that because that is spoiling the giant twist at the end of the game, but, yeah. uh, but definitely an interesting one. And yeah, so I guess before I just invite you to like just explain Deadly Premonition 2 to me, I guess like the, the one thing that's kind of like worth mentioning is that the Deadly Premonition comes out. It is a budget game. Um, I think, and I, also I think it's Japanese title is like Red Seeds Investigate or something like that. Yeah, I think so. It doesn't yeah. have the same title overseas. Yeah. But... Um, anyway, so yeah, it's a, it's a budget game that is, you know, looks incredibly chintzy, you know, like it just... It, it came out in 2010 and it looks like a PS1 era cutscene. Um, it is a, it's a, it's a hideous game yeah um which does weirdly add to its charm too yeah no i think that, like that's sort of like where i meant to go is like yeah like it looks terrible it does not play that well like it's not broken but it's honestly not a fun game to play it um has like it's you said ps1 and yeah a lot of it's like uh mechanics uh feel very dated a lot of like the way like upgrades and like collectibles and stuff work like feel like a ps1 game and and the thing is, though, like all of this, you know, like all of this sort of datedness about it, you know, in combination with it's like actually um, with a story that like ultimately that, that is kind of like charming from the get go because it like it apes on Twin Peaks very well, I think like it's like it's chintziness and it's datedness end up like really adding to its charm especially like as it gets more and more audacious as the story goes. And like it's also very it's very and the thing is like it's datedness like it's not just that like, oh, it looks, it looks bad and it plays bad. It has like these, um, if memory serves, doesn't it have like little like mini games or like little, like there are things you can do about the town that are almost like Shinmu like and like, and there's like a progression of time. That's very Shinmu like. Oh yeah. It has a, it has a day night cycle that is very long. It, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a full, I don't think it's a full 24 hours, but it's long. Um, and and it uh and yeah and so like there is a full clock there's a full schedule you work on like you say you log 20 hours into grand theft auto you've probably lived half a year within that game um because those day night cycles are so short you log 20 hours into deadly premonition you've done maybe two weeks like if that it's it's a very different kind of cycle and also like a lot of games that do have day night cycles time sensitive and date sensitive there's mm -hmm. side quests you can only pick up at certain times and dates and so you have to kind of keep track of other characters schedules where they are on what days um and the way you get past the um the uh the hurdle of the long time span let's say you need to do something thursday at 9 a.m 
but it is Monday at 1 p.m. You can just sleep a whole lot. And <laughs> the sleeping mechanic is hilarious uh, because I, we're still going on to that uh, premonition one. We'll move on to two in a second, which is actually the main topic, but it does tie a lot into two. Mm. Um, the sleeping mechanic is hilarious because you can just make your character sleep for like 24 hours, just get an, ins- like an absurd amount of sleep and <sighs> just then, like real life. Yeah. And then go right back to bed. There's a, <laughs> a, a really funny, the way I first got exposed to deadly premonition was back in, uh, 2012 or something when i was still in high school there is um there's a group of let's players that i've talked about on the show before that were originally known as the super best friends um they're no longer around they they disbanded a few years ago they still do a podcast under the name of castle super beast which i have referenced before on here too um but they uh uh one of the things that sort of put them on the map was they did a let's play of deadly premonition. Um, there's also, and it's important to mention there are sleepiness and hunger mechanics in the game as well. You need to eat so you don't die. Um, and so there, <laughs> there's a moment in their deadly premonition one let's play when they need to do something a few days and a few days later. Um, so they just go to they like go to bed. They, they do an incredibly long night's sleep. They get up and then they need to fill their hunger meter. So they eat a bunch of hot dogs and then go and then, you know, keep sleeping. And then one of them just mentions like, you just slept 18 hours, woke up, ate a bunch of hot dogs and then went back to bed. <laughs> like, it's, it really like the, the lunacy of those games is, is, of that game is fascinating. Anyway, moving on to Deadly Premonition 2, which came out last year, last summer on Nintendo Switch. Um, it is, whereas the first game is a complete, again, clowning, aping on uh, Twin Peaks. This one is a complete ape on season one of True Detective. Um, hmm. Very, very blatantly. There's even like, there's a line where a character says time is a flat circle. Like they're- they're. Are you kidding me? They're arguably more on the nose with this one than Deadly Premonition one. Wow. Yeah. Um- but like, uh, what's it like tonally? Because I mean, I've seen some footage and it's still like, it looks like a very bright, because yeah, it takes place in kind of like a- Rural fake, Louisiana. Y- yeah. Um, but it still looks like very bright and happy. And like, it looks like a Dreamcast game. Like that is sort of like my, like I look at it and go like, oh, it's Sonic Adventure. Yeah. Uh, and it, Dreamcast is a great analogy actually that I hadn't considered because it is a graphical upgrade from Deadly Premonition 1, a pretty significant one. And it still looks incredibly dated. <laughs> like it's like, it still looks like a game that would have come out at least 15 years ago, if not more. And my cat's walking on my keyboard. Uh, okay. Excuse me, Annabelle. You are, you are not making life easy. Okay. Uh, well, I'm just going to say real quick, uh i'm gonna repeat the last point i made because my cat just walked on my keyboard and paused the recording and i don't know where she paused it so i'm just gonna repeat that whole last point i made um what was my last point i was making (laughs) i am Um, okay so i mentioned the it looks like a dreamcast game yes yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah something something around there hopefully we got that yes so it looks it does look like a dreamcast game it still looks dated despite being a massive graphical update from update from the first game um and with that does come a really interesting kind of development on the gameplay so in deadly premonition one deadly premonition one really sort of leaned into the horror kind of element more i still wouldn't go on to call it a full-blown horror game but there's a lot more there's a lot more horrific imagery a lot more um a lot more subtext that is that leans into sort of the macabre, not, not subtext, like story beats that lean into the macabre. Um, and the the combat sequences in the game are far more, um, they attempt to be creepy. They don't necessarily pull it off, but they attempt to be creepy. I mean, they're basically set up in like a Silent Hill kind of way where, you know, you're in a place and then it becomes the weird version of the place and there are monsters. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so that's the first game. This one that is all still there you are again investigating a murder in a small town um that is sort of done as like what appears to be like an occult ritual as you learn more you do learn some pretty nightmarish thing there's a sequence pretty early on in the game when you learn how the murder was carried out you like sort of like have a vision of the past and see how the murder was carried out and it is awful it is actually probably the most genuinely disturbing 
either of those games has ever gotten. Like it really pulls, it really sticks the landing really well at getting under your skin. Um, but the uh, uh, by and large, the game has abandoned its horror roots a lot more and it feels a lot more like a sort of adventure game um there's a lot less of an emphasis on combat what combat is there however is 500 times worse than the first game and the first game wasn't great um in terms of combat but this game combat is such a clear afterthought that they didn't really want to deal with but they felt like they couldn't abandon altogether um and those sequences Whereas in the first game, like the combat sequences, they do kind of break up the pace a little bit and they're kind of a nice, they're not great, but they're kind of, they're kind of enjoyable. This game, the combat sequences are awful. You just are, there's no charm to them. You fight the same three enemy types over and over again in the same room over and over again. Uh, You don't really have any weapon variety. Uh, It's, it's, the combat's a slog and it's like the lowest point of the game. Is it still like a Resident Evil 4 style shooter or is it something else? I kind of, I, I guess that's the closest thing you can compare it to, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a downgrade from the first game. And that is, I would say, probably the weakest point of DP2. Um, that and its side quests are a lot worse. They're mostly just fetch quests um, mm. that aren't really worth your time. Uh, but the main story I would argue is an improvement over Deadly Premonition 1. It's a lot more focused because it has a much smaller cast, which like, yeah, Deadly Premonition 1 was fun to go be like, who's this wacky character? Who's this one? But it gets muddled and it becomes a lot of like, it just becomes red herring after red herring after red herring of like, who could have done this? Could it have been that? No, not them. Like it's got, this one is far more focused with a smaller cast that is all really eccentric and really charming. Um, And it, it, you, the smaller scale does really help its narrative a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not beaten it. I am literally on the last boss and I can tell it's going to have some huge twist for me. And I'm about 20 minutes from finding out what that twist is. So I'll, I'll get to that soon enough. But everything I have played up until this point is yeah, it's, it's really interesting because the first game is like kind of as we've been saying, like is a both a great game and a terrible game. It's a weird anomaly where it is a true like contradiction of a game. And it's not a so bad it's good thing necessarily. It is a kind of so bad it's bad and so good it's good kind of thing. And so is this game, but in a completely different way. It is like a very good spiritual successor to the first game. Uh, but in that respect, but it does change those what elements succeed and what fail. Um, it also uh, is interesting because it's a prequel to the first game too. It takes place in 2005 and uh, without getting into specifics, Hurricane Katrina plays like a massive role in the narrative, um, which oh. is a really interesting angle that it takes. Huh. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it, it is a, it's a prequel, but it requires to really understand like a lot of the subtext and a lot of things it alludes to like deadly premonition one is like mandatory reading there is mm-hmm. so much that will go right over your head if you don't play that game um but- okay that's that's interesting because yeah like i remember like i watched some footage of it and was like huh i do not see how this could possibly connect to the first one so huh that's okay yeah it's cool the one disappointment was um there's another game that uh the developer sweary um sweary 65 as he goes by uh uh put out between deadly premonition one and two called d4 dark dreams don't die and it was a very bizarre but also charming episodic game that never got finished they released two i think maybe three episodes and then the studio canceled it which blows but there was a lot of rumors because a portion of deadly premonition 2 also takes place in boston which is where d4 takes place and so there was murmurs and thoughts that like oh maybe this will tie into d4 and kind of wrap up d4's story in some way unfortunately it does not at all Um, there's a couple like nods to d4 in the boston segment mainly being that like the boston segment takes place entirely in an apartment and it is the same apartment as in d4 
but it plays huh. no it plays no narrative role it's just like a fun like ah that's the apartment from the game um but it's just a fun little nod but there is sadly no connection and still no tying of loose ends uh from d4 and deadly premonition 2 which which is a shame but uh, overall all things considered it is a it's a i i hesitate to call it an improvement on deadly premonition 1 and i hesitate to call it a downgrade it's just very different yeah and i think that's um like my two kind of questions that remain are like well one I, I guess like what is the I really do want to know like some of the basics of the story hook but I guess maybe so you don't have to like you know get into like real story detail uh, type things yeah like the difference of it is kind of surprising and also sort of like really exciting for me to hear I mean I don't know when I'm ever going to play this game because I don't own a switch and I'm probably not going to for the foreseeable future um due to a lack of supply and also um lack of funds but the yeah like you know when when you're in the situation of you know releasing a sequel to a cult hit like you get and like a particularly a cult hit like deadly premonition which you know was the um was successful or you know found an audience due to kind of like a really um a very particular kind of like combination of like, you know, aesthetic factors, basically, particularly, you know, like it's, it's cheapness and like, it's very earnest cheapness. Um, like it was campy. It was, it was, you know, very self-conscious and like, but also like it never felt um, like it was forcing camp. Like it always felt very earnest in a weird way. It feels like a story that is really excited to tell itself. Like yeah. it's very cool. And, and there's like, um, and there's a shot early in the original Deadly Premonition where it's like, you know, a cutscene where you first get into the town and there's this like uh, basically establishing shot of like uh, the park, kind of like the nearby wilderness. And it looks terrible. Like it's awful, but like, you know, the, the, but it's presented in, in like this very kind of like earnest, straightforward, like look at this lovely place kind of way. And that for me, like embodied like the contradiction of Deadly Premonition and like, you know, totally signaled that game's charm. Anyway, um, when you're releasing a sequel to that, I feel like there's this kind of like weird trick of like, well, how do you, you can't recreate that same relation that, that like people are going to have for this thing. You also can't really make it more of that. So I guess like, yeah, like tell me, how is it like, say if I'm coming in from the first Deadly Premonition, how does it like subvert like my expectation of like what Deadly Premonition ought to be outside of its kind of like increased linearity and like the lack of combat? So that's a really interesting question. I would say the biggest way it throws you for a loop is it also, another thing I completely forgot to mention, um, in terms of aping on True Detective, you there's a motif, motif throughout the game wherein uh, uh, the protagonist is being interviewed by the FBI inter inter or interviewed by detectives um, 10 years in the future. And the protagonist is a lot more haggard and cynical than he was uh previous it is it is the dead it is the um the true detective beats uh wow and, uh, yeah and it is but it comes right out of the gates with like you are seeing this protagonist who you knew as kind of like dale cooper very upbeat very optimistic very can do and you're seeing him like decrepit downtrodden and bitter um but it's not like an evil coop kind of thing from season three of twin peaks he's not evil but his motivations are very unclear and you're like where's this guy landing this is a very far cry from the character i know so it's like very so very matthew mcconaughey in true detective then exactly and so there is a whole mystery that it also ties into the twist of deadly premonition one which is why it's really important to play deadly premonition one first but mm -hmm. there is a whole mystery throughout the game of like okay how does this how does this event move to deadly premonition one to whatever is happening 10 years down the future okay um, okay okay that's that sounds really interesting yeah and the stories are very despite being a prequel when you get into the future you see that the stories are very connected and there's little illusions in the in the actual prequel stuff in louisiana um that that hint at what is to come in deadly premonition one um and so it's yeah it's it's very interesting in that respect. And it's also very interesting in how much more um, 
the right there is an improvement in the writing and it is still very campy writing and there is some very still stilted awkward dialogue in there but there's more charm to it than there, there's even more charm to it i would say than is in the first one in terms of how the characters interact with each other um there is every character feels very distinct beyond just like whereas the first game a lot of those characters are like here's their quirk here's the silly thing that this person does and this game has that but this game also feels like oh this is a really unique person with a backstory and a history and a relation to the protagonist that goes beyond like their silly eccentricity um which which really aids it too um, i would say that is probably to me where that game excels the most is in its storytelling in its narrative in its characters in its delivery of itself um the gameplay is nothing special uh it is it is uh, fine the combat is a huge downgrade from the first game um and the the side quests as i said are all fetch quests and really not worth your time and the game thinks it can get away with it because one of the first side quests you do it has like a meta thing where like the main character is like, they're just asking me to go pick up things. They're just asking me to go uh, pick items up. This is some kind of fetch quest or something. And it's like, it thinks it can get away with doing that by like commenting on itself. It's like, no, you can't, this doesn't, this doesn't fix the problem. Um, So, but it is, it is charming when it calls itself out. I can say that. Yeah. At least the frame rate's good. Right. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, that is a whole, we are, we're basically out of time here, but I will just say like, that was, that is one of the most on brand deadly premonition things about that game is it came out running at like 12 frames a second. It is, it was borderline unplayable when it came out. Like a lot of people who loved the first game and thought two looked promising could not play it because they're like, this game is chugging along at like a turtle's pace this is this is uh this is awful and really funny they put out patch after patch after patch over the last half a year and the game still only really maxes out around 27 28 frames a second like it is now playable but it still is very choppy like (laughs) and that is that is after months of trying to repair the problem which again the most on-brand deadly premonition thing and frankly i don't want them to try and fix it anymore i kind of like it where it's at because it still retains that jank um yeah no i agree i think i think it should stay janky um But yeah, no, I think we're pretty much out of time. But yeah, that sounds like a thing that I would like to play one day. You should, at the very least, you should watch a stream. You know how deadly. Mm-hmm. And actually, honestly, that's probably a fine way to consume the game. While I want to support it monetarily because it did horrible numbers, like worse than Deadly Premonition One did. Very sadly, mm-hmm. um, like no one bought the thing. I, I think the game should be supported monetarily and purchased. But if you don't really have the means to do that. A stream is a perfectly acceptable way to, to enjoy it because again, the combat's awful. The gameplay is nothing to write home about. This one is far more emphasis on the atmosphere and story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you would not be, you would not miss much of the experience by simply watching a stream, um, right. which I would recommend. Uh, anyway, yeah, that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, uh, we are going to close on the, uh, in Deadly Premonition 2, you, in the first game, you you traveled by car. You drove around the map on a car. In this one, you drive around on a skateboard because it's very clear that Swery, the developer, got recently really into Tony Hawk and wanted to implement Tony Hawk mechanics into his game. And it doesn't work, but (laughs) they tried. And there is one song that plays on a loop every time you get on a skateboard, which is your main method of travel. And it is the most earwormy song that you will hear for hours on end in that game. And uh, now I'm going to subject our listeners to it. So enjoy everybody. See you next week. Uh, Eat the rich. Stay safe and stay healthy. Yeah, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.